standing for the reading of God's word. I was going to let you sit for that last song, but you all really wanted to stand. All right. Our scripture reading today comes from Matthew chapter 6. You all hear me all right out there? All right, good. It says, And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them. For your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither then will your Father forgive your trespasses. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me and for me as we look to God's word this morning? Father, we ask again that you would be our guide through your spirit. Help my words to be your words. Help me not to add my thoughts, ideas, or opinions to what we're about to look at this morning. And so, Lord, I ask that this would be glorifying to you and edifying for your saints. May this equip your saints for the work of the ministry, that they may go out and live by it for, you, for your glory and by your grace. Help us now. We pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. You may be seated. The Earth's ocean covers over 70% of the planet's surface, and it makes up 97% of our entire water supply on this planet. And it happens to be the home of a whole bunch of different kinds of animals. In fact, I was reading this past week, scientists estimate that when it comes to just fish in the ocean, it has over 3 trillion fish. When I looked up the number, it had a whole bunch of zeros, and I was like, I don't even know how to say that number. i got to look this thing up. And when it comes to the largest fish in the ocean, because it has both great and small, do you know what the largest fish in the ocean is? Say it with me. If you said whale, you're wrong, because whale is not a fish. Shame on you. Your biology teacher would be very upset with you right now. Whales are not fish. They're mammals. All right, and so in case you're still wondering, you want to know what the largest fish is, it's actually the whale shark, which is a little bit confusing because it's like, okay, is it a shark or is it a whale? Like, let's pick one here, because they're very different things. It's like a cat dog or something. Anyways, I'm not here to talk to you about fish this morning or whale sharks. I'm actually here to talk to you about whales. So let's get back focusing here on whales. For instance now, the blue whale, which is the largest of whales, eats up to six tons of krill every day. What are krill? They're basically shrimp, and that sounds delicious to me. I wish I could eat six tons of shrimp every day, but I can't. And these big mammals, these whales, the blue whale, they live in all of the oceans of the world except one, the Arctic. It's too cold for them there. And I didn't know this, blue whales live to be about 80 to 90 years old. Now, I said before that blue whales are mammals like us, which means, unlike fish, they don't have gills to breathe underwater, right? They don't. And so what do they have to do? They swim down, and every once in a while, they come up to the top and breathe to get oxygen so that they can go back down. 
And the thing that's remarkable about these whales is they all have various amounts of time that they can do this for, stay underwater for, but some of them can hold their breath up to 90 minutes before they need to resurface to get air. I can last about 30 seconds before I get uncomfortable when I go swimming, maybe a minute or so. But this is, this is 90 minutes. And some of them have been spotted even 1,600 feet below the surface. Why? Because they go down there to get those munchy little yummy shrimp. I can go about 5 feet to 10 feet, and I start feeling uncomfortable with my ears. And this also means, though, I've never thought about this till this week, but this means whales can actually drown. Weird, right? Like, you wouldn't think that a whale could drown, but they can. Well, actually, it's suffocation. But the point is, even though they have been created to swim in the depths of the ocean, even though they find the ocean depths to be their natural habitat, the truth is, these whales are completely and entirely dependent upon breathing oxygen at the surface in order to survive. And without that oxygen, they can go a little while, but eventually they'll perish if they don't go back up for more oxygen. Now, the point, I, reason I bring this up, church, is do you realize that oxygen is to whales as prayer is to Christians? Very similar, actually. Sure, you might be able to go a while without prayer in your life, but make no mistake, if you don't resurface periodically to refuel yourself, you're going to be in some serious trouble. I don't care how good you are at holding your spiritual breath, you're not going to make it in the long term. These past several weeks as a church, we've been looking at prayer, and last week we looked at the purpose of prayer, and you can answer out loud here if you know the answer, but what was the primary purpose of prayer? Starts with a W and ends with ship, and it's not worship. It's close. Well, what is it? Worship. It's worship. The essence, actually, of prayer is worship. And as we saw last week, we saw that we worship God in prayer by, first off, not approaching him as sovereign. We approach him first as father, right? Nobody gets to approach the king just on their own when they want to, unless it's like a family member or something. And we are a family member of the king of kings, right? He's not primarily our judge. He's our father. Second off, we approach him as our majesty. What does that text say? It says, our father who art where? In heaven right? That matters. He's not just our father, right? He's our heavenly father, which means we hallow his name. We show him reverence. We show him respect, right? We worship that holy name. Then third, we approach him as Lord. And in that prayer, as we saw last week, we go on to pray what? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Not my will be done. That's a scary thought as we're going to get to in a minute, but thy will be done. And so once we have all of that as the foundation of our prayer, only then can we go on to pray, Lord, give us this day our daily bread. And if you don't have that established first, your prayers aren't going to be heard, right? They're not going to work. And so as we discussed last week, the Lord's Prayer is not a formula of, it's not only just a formula of what to pray, it's, an or, it's a, like a formula of what order even to pray in, right? Like we don't just jump right into the, hey, I need more bread, right? All of these things must come first, and not in just this mechanical way. You know, you know, football games and stuff, often you'll hear them say the Lord's Prayer, those kind of things. It's just this ritualistic thing, which is pretty ironic because the Lord's Prayer was meant to destroy ritualistic prayer, and now we use it as ritualistic prayer. But the point is, our hearts must be fueled by what the content of this prayer is, which is approaching God 
as Father, Majesty, and Lord. And so overall, if we were going to take these, you know, last week and, next, and, and this week's sermons together, which would be nice, here's what it would look like. It would be prayer is worship. How? By approaching God as Father, Majesty, and Lord. And then today, prayer is secondly what? Dependence. After it's worship, it's also dependence. And if you'd let me preach for like three hours every Sunday, we could do all this at once, but we can't. So we'll split it up. It'll be all right. Verse 11 says what? Give us this day our daily bread. That's provision, right? That's, what, that's, that's the dependence part of this. Prayer is dependence. How? With provision. By provision. And so when Jesus says to pray for our daily bread, he doesn't have Olive Garden's delicious bread, I'm making you all hungry, in his mind. That's not just what he's thinking of. As much as that is yummy, that's not what he has in mind. He's speaking of what? He's speaking of our needs. He's saying we ought to pray this, give us this day what we need, what is necessary for us. That's the point of the prayer, which includes what? All of our material and physical needs. We're supposed to rely on God for those things. He's the creator and the sustainer of the universe. All right? And now why are we supposed to pray these things to him? Because proper worship-driven prayer that approaches God as Father, Majesty, and Lord, it changes our circumstances. Do you believe that? Do you believe that prayer actually changes our circumstances? Because if you don't, I would remind you what we saw a few weeks ago in Hezekiah's prayer, where God specifically says to Hezekiah, because you prayed, I did this. Which was what? Save the Israelites. Prayer moves the hand of an omnipotent God. It absolutely does. All right? Now bear in mind, though, our prayer changes our circumstances because we are praying to an omnipotent God, all right? It doesn't work because we're praying to Mary or some other dead saint. They don't have any power whatsoever. It works because we pray in the name of Jesus to the sovereign Lord of the universe who can act in his creation and often does act in his creation. This is the God, may I remind you, in Genesis who speaks and the universe shows up. That's a very powerful God. And so we got to never forget this, church, just how amazing this truth is. The God of the universe, the creator and sustainer of it all, he hears little old me's prayers. He hears little old you's prayers. Sinful you's prayers, right? That's remarkable. The God who will one day, very, very soon, hopefully tomorrow or today even, will bring in his eternal kingdom and destroy all the nations who rage against it, as we saw a couple weeks ago, in Psalm chapter 2. It's this God who not only hears our prayers, but as we'll eventually see in about four years when we get to the next chapter in Matthew chapter 7, he delights in giving his children good things. He enjoys to. Let me show you this. Here's a little, here's a little teaser for it. Matthew 7, 9 through 11 says this, or which one of you, if he asks his son for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? How much more? A whole lot more is the implied answer there. See, as a parent, I really like to give my kids things that they want, as long as they're good for them. Sometimes even when they're not good for them, that's the 
imperfection part of my parenting, like lots of candy and stuff. But I delight to give them things that give them, bring them joy. All right? And think about this. I'm a very imperfect parent at this. Very imperfect. But God, our Heavenly Father, is very perfect at it. He does it perfectly, always. I don't remember where I came across this next point, but think about this. Do you realize that God has never refused to give you something that you prayed for that was good for you, that you needed? Have you thought about that before? Your prayers are always heard as his children, right? Sometimes the answer is no, right? But he always gives us what is good for us in that moment. Even sometimes when he hears our prayers, when we are in sin, what does he do? He doesn't listen because it's a, it's a disciplining way to get us to return back to fellowship with him. And so think about this. We pray not to a reluctant God who's like, all right, you got three minutes and get out of here. I got stuff to do. No, this is a God whose attention, you know, thinking of Psalm 139, it's everywhere, right? He doesn't have to divert his attention from one to the other. He can see all things. He's in all places at all time. He's all knowing. And so we pray not to a reluctant God, but to our heavenly father who always perfectly gives us precisely and exactly what we need in that moment. He never holds back. He never refuses to listen out of punishment because he's angry with us and wants us just to know how upset he is. He doesn't do that with us. What does he do? He gives us liberally and freely, and it's his great delight, in fact, to do so. In James chapter 4, Jesus' half-brother James says this. He says, we have not because we ask not. Is that stinging a little bit for you? It should. It was for me. How many times in our life are we facing hardship or difficulty, and the last thing we do is turn to the Lord in prayer? A lot. I do a lot. I forget to do that. I don't think to do that. James says, you have not because you ask not. How many times do we face financial hardship, job loss, relational struggles, and the last person we think of bringing it to is the one person in the universe who has complete and total power to do something about it. This one's pretty convicting for me as a pastor, right? Because whenever an issue pops up, I don't know if you know this, but sometimes there's conflict in churches. You probably have never seen this before. But sometimes there's conflict in churches, and I don't know if you know this as well. There's another thing. I'm also human in sin. So, getting two shockers for some people here today, but here's the point. I am tempted just like you are to, when conflict arises, run around like a chicken with my head cut off, trying to figure out, oh, how are we going to deal with this? Oh, I better call, you know, my, my mentor over here. And for all this. It's like, well, stop. Pray about it. Go to the Lord in prayer. Go to the omnipotent, sovereign God of the universe who happens to be your heavenly Father. That's the person you should be talking to, first and foremost, ever before we pick up phones to call somebody and say, what do I do? What do I do? Go here. What do I do? Go to God. Pray about it. And here's the remarkable thing. And I can tell you this absolutely happens. The times I do that, I am continually blown away at how situations seem to just resolve themselves. Not always, because sometimes, you know, suffering in these trials, as we're going to get to, these testings have a greater purpose. But it's pretty remarkable that when we go to God in prayer and ask things, he answers them, right? And we, it's like we forget that. We intellectually believe that, but we behave as if we've forgotten that at times. God does answer prayers. Why? Because we are bringing our requests not to a counselor, 
not to a therapist, but to the King of kings and Lord of lords. As the great hymn writer John Newton once wrote, Thou art coming to a king, large petitions with thee bring. For his grace and power are such, none can ever ask too much. Do you believe that? In verse 8, it says that our Father knows what we need even before we ask him. If he's a good father, my question then is this. If he's a good father and he delights in giving me what I need, why am I asking for it then? And if I ask for it, can I just do that like today and say, God, will you give me my bread for the rest of my life so I can stop having to do this daily? Would that, would that cover it? No. Why? Because Jesus says we are to pray not for our weekly bread, not for our monthly bread, and not even our yearly bread, our daily bread. And part of the reason is you don't know if your life is going to end today. You don't know if you're going to need bread in three months from now. You might not be here. I might not be here. And there's another reason for this, and there's actually something so much deeper, I think, going on in this text when Jesus is saying to pray for your daily bread. I think it's because God wants us to come to him daily for our physical needs. Why? Because it helps us recognize our greater, deeper spiritual needs. Yes, we need our daily bread. But as Jesus says in Matthew 4, 4, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Prayer is communion with God. We read God's thoughts in his word, and we pray them back to him, and we commune with this God. And so when we go to God daily in prayer, we are looking to our Heavenly Father for our need, that is a need that is so much greater than a mere grumbly tummy. That's important. Pray for it. But we are actually looking to him to satisfy the grumbling tummy of our spiritual souls. That's really the primary purpose here. Now, in our culture, we don't really have too big of a problem of finding where we're going to get our next meal, do we? In fact, a lot of us have the opposite problem where we're trying to figure out ways to skip that next meal, and there's all sorts of programs out there and you know, things like that you can sign up for. But even so here, make no mistake, our daily bread is 100% dependent upon a sovereign God. Even for those of us in America who have no struggles really finding our next meal, we must not forget that our next meal, even though it appears to not come from God, it does come from God. God is the maker and the sustainer of our universe. He is the one who sends the rains. He holds the molecules and the atoms together. How? As Hebrews says, by the word of his power. And if he stopped doing that for even five seconds, we'd all be toast. We are completely then physically and spiritually dependent upon God. And so to return, so we must daily return to God for our nourishment. You realize that God is our greatest need? If we don't realize that, though, you know what happens? It leads to hardship, which leads us to our second point. Prayer is provision but it's also pardon. Verse 12 says, And forgive us our debts, as we have forgiven our debtors. <clears throat> For if you forgive others their trespasses, in verse 14, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. 
But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. All right, what's going on here in this verse? Are these verses saying that if I don't forgive others, then God's going to disown me as his child? Think about this. Is that the point of this text? If you don't forgive others, you're going to lose your adoption card and you're going back to the orphanage. Is that the point? Not even a little bit. All right? That's a damnable heresy. You don't want to believe that. All right? That's not the point. The question that's being addressed here, the issue that's being addressed here, is very different than that. All right? And I'll tell you why. Is this prayer for everyone or is this prayer for God's children? It's for God's children. We pray, Our Father. You can't pray, Our Father unless you've been adopted into the family of God, all right? Yes, in one sense, we are all collectively, God is our Father in terms of Him being the Creator, all right? But there's a very different fatherhood that we as the redeemed church of God have with Him that others don't. It's very different. Anybody, you know, there's, there's, there's fathers out there who don't even know their children whatsoever. Yeah, they're technically their father, but they're not really a father to them at all, right? But to God, He is our Heavenly Father, He is close with us. He's intimate with us. And as we saw last week, the only way you get to pray our Father is how? By grace, not of works. Not of works, why? So that no one gets to boast. And so, yes, we are completely and entirely saved, justified, and adopted by God's grace. However, as we just said, our greatest need is to live in a relationship with God. And when we sin, what does that do with that relationship with God? Like, think about this with me. What does it do when we sin? Does it, is God just like, ah, whatever, it's my kid, no big deal? No. Causes a rift in that relationship, doesn't it? If my kids are disobeying Becky and I, yes, I love them. Yes, they're still my children, but there's a problem. And that needs to be addressed and dealt with before we can go back to wrestling or playing or whatever, right? It's important. Let me show you this in the scripture because we don't want to get this wrong. Ephesians 4.30 says this, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Proverbs 28.9 says, If one turns away his ear from hearing the law, then what? His prayer is an abomination to God. That's a strong word. All right? 1 Peter 3.12, For the, eye, the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And if these aren't powerful enough examples, I got one more here. First Peter 3, 7. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understandable way. Why? Look at the last part of that verse. So that your prayers may not be hindered. What does that mean here? Well, it means this. Don't sin or your prayers will be hindered. It's pretty straightforward, is it not? Like, that's the point of these verses, right? We must go to God and deal with our sin, confess our sin to him when we sin as his children. In writing to believers, John says this, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He's writing to believers here. He's not, this is not like him, he's getting up on you know, the corner street and he's like, hey, y'all, you need to confess your sins and become children of God. No, he's writing to believers in this passage, in this text, in this book, in this letter. Now, there are some out there who say believers do not need to confess their sin because true believers, true children of God, don't sin. 
This is called sinless perfectionism. Anybody ever heard of this before? Some people do believe this. It's weird. But it's a heresy. Why do I call it a heresy? Because in the verse right before this, John calls it a heresy. Right? If we say we have no sin, we what? We deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. We're not God's children at all unless we recognize that. All right? Because a regular part of being a child of God, all right, is going to him in confession. So we all sin, church, regularly and much more often than we even have a clue of. And the remarkable thing about that is this. Our Heavenly Father not only doesn't punish us, but He delights to forgive us. He delights to show us mercy and grace when we go to Him. As we've seen with Jesus' teaching through the Sermon on the Mount, what is He doing? He's blasting hypocrisy. Religious hypocrisy, right? You've got the scribes and the Pharisees, and he's like, these jokers are way off. Don't listen to them. Your righteousness needs to be way greater than theirs. And everybody else is like, well, how are we going to do that? Because theirs looks pretty good on the outside. All right? So Jesus is blasting their hypocrisy. And tell me this. How hypocritical is it to go to God and ask him for forgiveness while refusing to forgive the person sitting next to you? The answer is, that's blue whale-sized hypocritical. Very hypocritical. And look, I get it. Forgiving people's hard. It, it's painful to do so. In fact, without the supernatural grace of God changing your heart, you can't do it. You can't truly forgive somebody. However, and this is where verses 14 and 15 come into play, it's not that God will refuse to forgive us and disown us if we haven't put forth enough forgiveness coins into the machine, right? That's not the point. It's this. It's that a heart that readily forgives reveals a forgiven heart. If you zoned out, zone back in for this because this is important. I'm going to say it one more time. A heart that readily forgives reveals a forgiven heart. See how different that is? That's a big difference. That's an important distinction. This text isn't saying a heart that readily forgives creates a forgiven heart before God. No, because you've been forgiven, you will forgive. And if you don't forgive, let's go back to the drawing board. What does that mean? Have you even been forgiven? Probably not, right? That's the point. That's the point of this text. The only thing, church, that creates a forgiven heart is the grace of God who adopts sinners and saves them by his wonderful grace. It's his saving work that does it, not ours. Why? Because he's the only one who gets the boast about it. And so once then we have come to taste this forgiveness, once we've entered into a relationship with our Heavenly Father, and he's forgiven us, ultimately, judicially, we stand justified. He sees Zach Broom. What does he see? He sees Christ. That's what he sees from that point on, in terms of my justification, all right? But in terms of my sanctification... Walking with Christ, fellowship with Christ, that's where sin can still enter in and cut us off from fellowship with him. This is important stuff. Which means, if I've got grudges with people around here at church, that means I've got a rift in my relationship with God. If I have a hypercritical spirit and I get all uppity and look down upon people around me, that means God does not hear my prayers. If i got sin going in my life at home, whether it be what I watch on the TV or on my computer, I have a rift with my Heavenly Father. And so what does that mean we ought to do? 
confess our sins to our our loving Heavenly Father, who is faithful and just to forgive us of those sins. We need to go to him when we recognize this sin and ask this God to help my wandering heart not to wander anymore. All right? My heart is prone to wander, prone to leave the God I love. So God, I confess this wandering to you. But I also then go on to pray, once I have returned from said wandering as a prodigal son or daughter, to pray, Lord, help me not to wander again. What does the text say? Lead me not into temptation, but deliver me from evil. Which leads us to our third point. Prayer is dependence by provision, by pardon, and its protection. Once our fellowship with God is restored, my next need is to continue in that fellowship without any rift or thing disrupting that fellowship with God. Now, if you notice, some translations translate this text, deliver us from the evil one. Some of them say deliver us from evil. It doesn't really matter. The point is still evil, okay? If it's the evil one, why? Well, because it's gonna, he's going to lead us into evil, right? So it's, it ends up being the same thing. It's not a big difference. It's the same idea. It's to deliver us from evil. Now, we're going a little bit backwards here in the order of this verse, but as far as the first part of this verse goes, we are praying to ask God to keep us out of temptation, right? That's the first part of it. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, right? And so the temptation part, it's the idea of a trap, right? The Greek word actually has to do with like a trap. It's a little more than that, but that's the idea, okay? It's to keep us away from sin's traps. However, we also know that God uses these traps, these testings is a better word we could use, to refine us. Look at James 1, 2 through 4. I'll put it up here for you. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet various trials or testings, we might say, of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So we might translate verse 13 this way. Lead us not into the hardship of temptation, Lord. However, not my will, but thy will be done. And so if your will be that I face this testing, may it be that I not be overcome by evil. That needs to be our prayer. It's perfectly fine to say, God, if you can, if you can sandpaper some of these hard edges off without me going through the testing, please do so. But if you decide to send me through them, my ultimate prayer is that I would come out refined more in the image of Christ. Do you see then how different this prayer is from simply praying the American dream? Anybody guilty of doing that before? Yes. Yes, certainly pray that God would keep you from testing and hardship, but realize it is one of his greatest tools for refining you into the image of Jesus. Just as steel needs to be heated to become bendable and pliable to do with it what you want, We too need to go through the fires of life sometimes. God uses that, right? When the fires of life come, then do we pray as Jesus did, not my will be done, but thy will be done. Do you pray, verse 10, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven before you get to asking for what you think your daily bread is? This is important. Or do you stubbornly insist that, you know what, nope, this is what I need, I know, God, let's go. Deliver, right now. Do we think 
stubbornly that we have the best vantage points upon our own needs over an all-knowing God. It's kind of silly, isn't it, if you think about it? Have you ever heard the expression, the cure is worse than the disease? Have you heard that before? One example of this is, I don't know if it's true, but it works for the sermon. I heard this a while back. Somebody mentioned it to me. You know those little, like, beetles that we have around here? They weren't here, like, 15 years ago. Those little, I don't know if they're Japanese beetles or what they are, but they get everywhere, and they're obnoxious. Anybody seen those? I know. Okay, you know what I'm talking about. We'll call them Japanese beetles. I think that's what they are. I did a quick Google search. That's the best I could find. But here's what I was told. They brought these little dudes in to help out with a problem. And it created a, shocking, bigger problem because they don't have a natural predator to keep them in check. So they're all over the place. I get them in the sliding part of my, you know, my door that opens and everything. They're, they're really obnoxious. I even find them in the middle of winter. I'm like, how are you still alive? You know, like this doesn't make sense. But they got brought in because silly old man thought they knew better what worked best for the ecosystem here. Now, with this in mind, think about how we pray to God. Can you think of a time in your life where you prayed for something that if God had given it to you, it would have been the equivalent of getting Japanese beetles? <laughs> I can. The other day, me and my dad were talking about how, you know, we look back at different stages of our life, and we're like, man, when I was 15, man, boy, was I dumb. Man, when I was 25, and I hit 25, I'm like, look back at 15, I'm like, boy, was I dumb. Then I hit 30, I'm like, man, when I was 25, boy, was I dumb. It just keeps going, right? Like, there's no stop to it. It's just like every phase, you're like just slightly less dumb, Lord willing, than your previous dumb. And so if you think about that, why would I want dumb 20-year-old Zach to have God answer every one of his prayers? Like, I can think of a few things in my life that I prayed for, and looking back, I'm like, that would have been Japanese beetles. <laughs> that would have been a whole mess that I did not need. It would have been a terrible idea if God would have answered those requests and given them to me. In Letters to Malcolm, chiefly on prayer, C.S. Lewis writes this, If God had granted all the silly prayers I made in my life, where would I be now? And the answer is big trouble, for sure. And so thankfully, though, we pray to a God who doesn't give us simply what we want, but what we need. That's a big distinction. He gives us not what we want, but what we need. And often, this is the hard part, what we need doesn't feel so good. Sometimes we need the surgeon's scalpel. I don't like it. It doesn't feel good. I don't like the achiness that comes with it, the pain, and all that. No, but we still need that. And so every time, this means then that when a testing pops up in our life, as we discussed last week, and I'll just go through these two options quickly, there's two wrong ways to respond. The first is we think, how dare you, God? What are you doing? I've prayed for this for six months, and you haven't answered me. And he's like, yes, I did. <laughs> Right? That's the first response, because we think that we're better than we actually are. We think we're less sinful than we actually are. And the reality is, do we deserve God to give us what we want at all? To answer our prayers? No, we don't. Not even a little bit. Second, what we do is we feel depressed and guilty about it. We think, you know why God's not answering my prayers? I've just sinned too much. I'm such a bad Christian. We go all Eeyore about it, right? Like, oh, nobody knows. i got nothing to offer. It's like, yeah, you're right. You do have nothing to offer, but that's not the point. The reason you have any value whatsoever is because of Christ. So stop looking back to your identity for your value and keep looking to Christ for his value. But the point is, whether it's 
pride in thinking, how dare you, God, or pessimism in thinking, oh, woe is me. That's why God's not answering. I guess I better try to make more church services. I better try to read my Bible more so he starts hearing my prayers. No, that's not the basis by which we engage with our Heavenly Father. Our God doesn't give us what we want, but what we need, and what he gives us is all by his wondrous grace. Not your works, not your status. It's all by his wondrous grace, period. And here's a shocking point for you, but Tim Keller had a good point on this, right? That's a big shocker. Well, making that he pointed out something pretty remarkable from Hebrews 5.7, which says this, and I hadn't thought about this before. This is pretty neat. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him, his heavenly father, by the way, who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. What? He was heard? He's, he died on the cross. Like, God didn't give him what he was asking for, right? He said, if it be your will, Lord, take this cup from me. So what is the author of Hebrews talking about? Is, did he get, like, some other story that isn't? No. He knew the story of Christ. So how was Jesus heard? He was heard, but the answer was no. Instead, the Father said back, for instead, Jesus, I will hear your prayer and not give you what you want. I will give you something even greater, beyond what you currently think you need. I will give you something beyond what your small view of things can allow you to see. And you know what I mean by that. Jesus is God, Jesus is Lord, but in that moment in his humanness, he didn't see all things because he set it aside momentarily in the incarnation. However, in his manhood, he thought he desired, just as we do, to be spared from the testing. But instead, God, his Father, came back and he said, instead, you will go through this and I will give you something so much greater than being spared from the testing. I will give you resurrection life. And not just for you, but for countless others who through your name will trust in your shed blood, the testing you're going to go through, and it will save them. And so here's the remarkable thing. God not only hears our prayers, but he gives us the value of our prayer in response. I don't remember where I read that, but that's good, right? He gives us the value of our prayer in response, but not the currency often. See, this is huge. A lot of times, we go to the Lord like the Apostle Paul, and we're like, hey, Lord, take this suffering from me. I need this gone so I can serve you better. And God says what? My grace is sufficient. It is made perfect in weakness. Sometimes, like Paul, the suffering we are in is to keep us from a greater evil. And so while we should pray, Lord, lead us not into temptation, lead us not into testing, we also pray not my will be done, but thy will be done. And so, because we know and trust that God will always answer our prayers by heaping more value and worth upon us than we can possibly imagine, we need to recognize, though, that he often doesn't give it to us in the currency we want. Sometimes I'm like, I want cash now so I can go spend it. And God's like, nope, this is going into savings. This is, you're going to get this down the road. Right now, we're going to invest it. It's going to come. I'm going to give you the value of what you're asking for, but not in the currency you want it in. Does that make sense? That's a huge distinction there. You know, I don't think we ever go a Sunday without mentioning Romans 8.28. 
but it says all things work together for good. For everybody? No. For those who love God. For those who are the children of God. And so when it comes to praying for that good, we must recognize that if we knew what God knew, we would have prayed asking for exactly what he gave us. That make sense? If I knew what God knew, right, I'm asking for this and God's answer is no and he gives me this, if I knew what he knew, I never would have asked for this. I'd be like, yeah, God, you're right. Give me, give, give me that. I'll, the, t- the testing is, is what I need. Let's do this. I'll trust you through it. For our desire ought to be God's desire. And our desire is not to be delivered from testing, but to be delivered from evil. That's the ultimate goal. And oftentimes, through God's sovereignty and wise provision, he puts us through the testing so that we may come refined on the other end as shine as gold. Testing refines us. It reveals areas of weakness, or we might say areas of unchrist-likeness where we don't reflect Jesus as we ought. I realized this a little bit this past week, that I'm a little bit more impatient than I thought I was. I always knew I was, but not quite to the degree I was, because what happened was, me, Becky, and the kids went up to the North Shore, and we were checking out you know, the lighthouse up at, where's the harbors called? Two, two harbors? That's the name of it? Split Rock, right? Checking, out, checking it out there, and we were trying to get all the kids lined up underneath it so I could get a photo of them and stuff, and this is like trying to herd cats, right? I don't believe in purgatory, but if I did, that would be my job in purgatory, trying to get kids to smile for a picture. It's awful, right? And it revealed that I got a little bit of an impatience problem. So the point is, though, if I would have never gone through that very mild, I'm going to use testing very liberally here, the testing of trying to get four munchkins to stand still for a photo, I wouldn't have realized that, right? This is the point of testing, though. This applies to every aspect of our life, does it not? Hardship reveals, testing reveals what's in us faster and clearer than almost anything else. Your true colors come out, right? You can't just say, oh, well, I'm really tired. That's, no, your tiredness, that testing, is revealing what's in your heart, right? This is, we're going to get to fasting next week, so I won't touch this, but this is one, this is one of the, I won't touch this too directly, I'll say, We'll say that for next week. But the point, think about this. When we fast, what does that produce in us? A testing of our physical bodies. And to not respond with impatience and frustration and anger in that moment of fasting, if you've ever done it before, you know what I'm talking about. It's difficult. It reveals what's in us. And what's in us is scary often, right? It's kind of like C.S. Lewis compares it to the rats in the cellar. He says, when you come downstairs suddenly and flick the lights on, it's not the light being flicked on that made the rats be there. It revealed what was already there. And until you turn the lights on, you don't know that. And so hardship testing reveals what's truly in us. When a stressful situation comes up and we respond in fear, dread, anxiety, or panic, or worry, why is that? Is it because our circumstances need to change now so that that will go away? No, wrong. It's a testing that reveals that in us. For the testing isn't creating the problems, it's revealing it. And the problem is a heart problem that doesn't trust as it should in our Heavenly Father. A heart that is still trying to find satisfaction in the world instead of in God. The problem is a heart 
that doesn't adhere to what Philippians 4, 6 says when it says, do not be anxious about anything. That's nothing. There's no anything we get to be anxious about. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And when it comes to life and testing, it reveals the evil that still lurks within our hearts. And this means then that when that testing comes and reveals that stuff that's in us, what are we supposed to do? Try harder, be better. No, go to God, (laughs) confess it. Get on our knees before our Father, confess it, and ask him to help us then not be overcome by evil in the future, right? And he quickly forgives us is the remarkable thing about it. And when that happens, that leads to deeper healing. For that deeper healing to occur, though, we must live in prayerful dependence upon God for those three things we've looked at this morning, for his provision, for his pardon, and for his protection. We need to depend on God in those three ways. And so I ask you in closing here, you know, is your life a life of prayerful dependence? Are you looking to God for his gracious provision, pardon, and protection from evil, or do you think you've got it all pretty much handled on your own? I'm okay. I'm, I got this, Lord. If things get real bad, I'll come to you. And what does Jesus say? No, give us this day our daily bread, right? Are you going to God for your daily sustenance, both physical and spiritual? Or are you trying to stand in your own power? And if so, hear the words of 1 Corinthians 10, 12, which says this. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he falls. Closing question here for you to reflect on as you go this week. What area in your life do you have to go to God daily and ask for his aid? What area in your life do you know that if you don't do that, you will be overcome by evil? Sin will get you with its traps. And if you don't have one, then I think it's fair to say, I don't think you're really relating to God as Father, right? I don't know about you, but I have to feed my kids every single day. I can't take months off, weeks off, right? They need to be fed daily, all right? And if I don't, they'll starve. And so too with us as God's children. Are you prayerfully depending upon God for the nourishment you desperately need? Are you coming to him daily as father by his grace, knowing that he delights to shower us with blessing? Do you believe that? As Hebrews 10.22 says, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. May we be a church that daily draws near to our Heavenly Father, who gives us what we need, forgives us when we fail, and empowers us to not fail in the future. And may we do it for His glory and our good. We pray these things. Let's pray with me. Father, we just pray, Lord, that all these things we looked at today, that we would live by them. And we pray all these things in Christ's name, Lord, that we would, by your power, draw near to you in worship, first and foremost, as we begin approaching you as Father by your grace. 
We ask also that we would not forget that you, aren't, you are more than our Father. You are also our majesty and our Lord. And so, Lord, we also ask that we would live lives dependent upon you completely for our provision, that we might have all that we need in this life, not what we want, but what we need. Pardon us from our sin when we do break fellowship with you. Help us to not fear returning to you, but to realize that when we sin, as prodigal sons and daughters, that you run out to meet us and delight in restoring us, that you're ready to throw a banquet when that happens. And so also, Lord, help us to live depending upon you for our protection from testing and evil. Help us to not desire to avoid testing, but to desire to avoid evil. It's not wrong to not like testing, but it is wrong to insist on no testing before you when we know that you use it to refine us. And so, Lord, I just pray that we as a church would be a praying church, that we would come before you and worship your glorious name, not just on Sunday mornings through song and preaching, but also throughout the week as we stop to reflect upon your wonderful attributes, upon who you are, how majestic you are, how great you are, upon your holiness, your righteousness, and help that to continually perplex us in how a holy God would ever love a sinner such as me. Lord, we just ask that you would bless us in wonderful ways. We ask that we would be a praying church. We ask that we would be a church that lives in dependence upon you, not upon any one person's natural gifts or a group of people's natural gifts, but help us to realize that we face a very real enemy who seeks our destruction. But we know that through your grace and through your power, we can overcome that. Be with us as we go. Help us to love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Stand with us as we sing our closing song this morning.